How would you like to do some ancient history to start today? Love to. Well, we're such a good response. I mean, I wonder if we should yank it up a bit. How about some classical modern uh, moral philosophy? Some Greek words and all that stuff. Yeah, well, this is great. I didn't expect that at all. Um, in the ancient world, in the Roman world, they, just like we do today, they ask the question, uh, how can I be happy? What's the good life? to lead. And uh, there were two sort of conflicting schools of thought, lots of different ideas, but two that really were kind of prominent that people gave a lot of time to. And one was called Stoicism, good word. The other, even better, a couple more syllables, Epicureanism. Wow, if you can drop that into a sentence today, you'll, be, uh, you'll look about 10 times cleverer. Okay, Stoicism taught that basically happiness came from you've got to suppress your dangerous emotions and uh, basically you've got to do that by developing self-control and self-discipline and, uh, and um, abstinence. That was the idea of stoicism. A picture may appear behind me which shows you a similar idea. I think that's Snow, um, that young boy's in without a top on. He's not a stoic but it's just a picture that I found that might em- demonstrate the idea. Stoicism is about discipline. Okay? However, the Epicureans on the other hand were a very different uh, kettle of fish altogether. They taught that happiness was to be equated with pleasure and if you wanted to be happy then really sensual pleasure was what you went after. Good food, good drink, sex, parties, the whole lot. Okay? Very different schools of thought. Now I've got, I've got to say this at this point just to cover my back. That is a very stereotypical view of those two nuanced and complex philosophies as any philosophy is. <laughs> However, that was probably the stereotypical black and white view that came down to most followers who, and there were many followers of these, at least in passing, uh, in the times of the Bible. They were even mentioned Stoics and Epicureans in the book of Acts. Now, uh, here's, I'm not just to kind of give you this just to kind of stop. Let's talk about something completely different. Here's the question that I've got about this. Uh, which of these two approaches to life is most similar to Christianity? That's my question. Stoicism, self-discipline, abstinence, going without, or Epicureanism, pleasure, enjoyment. Which one? Now, I'm not going to ask you to kind of uh, answer uh, that this morning like I do sometimes, but I'm sure that some of you have got all sorts of different thoughts going around your head. Bible verses might be on one side, and then you might think of some on the other side as well. But actually, uh, for some of you, you will lean one way on this, and some of you in your own Christian life will lean the other. I think we've got three groups of people I would imagine sitting before me, of which I will be in one uh, camp. Uh, We've got Christians here who lean more towards the stoic focus of life. And if you're like this, you'll be convinced uh, that Christians should be very frugal, We should live very simple lives. We shouldn't sleep too much. We shouldn't eat too much. We shouldn't drink too much. You'll think that self-control is one of the most important things about Christian living, whether that's to abstain from sin in certain ways or to set your alarm clock a bit earlier to pray. I guess the Stoic rule of thumb would be if God does not explicitly approve of it in the Bible, don't do it. That's sort of Stoicism. Some of you will probably lean a bit more that way. But then there'll be others here who would lean a little bit, who are Christians, but you'd lean more towards the Epicurean way. You'll think, well, wait a minute, God has given us food, drink, parties, films, music, relationships to enjoy, so we should enjoy them. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And actually, you, you know, there's, there's limits to that but from instruction of the Bible, and you'll go to the edge, and, and sometimes maybe even you'll go over, but under, after all, you might say, we're under grace, not under law. And you figure that your enjoyment of life is actually part of your worship to God. More Epicurean Christians. 
I guess the rule of thumb for an Epicurean Christian would be if God doesn't explicitly condemn it in his word, we'll do it. That would be the idea. The third group would be people, I guess, here who are looking from the outside, looking in at Christianity. You might find this question interesting. Well, what is Christianity? You might have met Christians who exhibit one of those sides to it. You might have studied this a little bit. Well, whatever of those three groups you're in, I want to see what Jesus said about this himself. Is Christianity more about uh, stoicism, self-discipline, fasting, or is it about Epicureanism, joy, pleasure, feasting. That's what we're saying today. What's Christianity like? And we're going to do that as we continue our series on Luke. So if you've got a Bible, if you could turn to Luke chapter 5, uh, 29 to 35 is where we're going to be uh, reading from. Luke 5, 29 to 35, reading in the New Living Translation. Uh, later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples, Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Jesus answered them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who think they are sinners and need to repent. One day, some people said to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples pray and fast, fast and pray regularly. And so did the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? Jesus responded, Do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. We've uh, spent Easter out of our series on Luke, started uh, Luke's Gospel just before Christmas. And we've, but we've had a bit of time out, so it's good to probably recap where we're up to. What has happened in Luke so far? Well, it's difficult sometimes for us coming to a gospel and asking that question when we know what's going to happen at the end. For any of us here, you will know more about the ending than some of the original readers of this book. Luke here is laying out the story for people who'd never heard of this Jesus in some cases. And so what's he doing? Well, really what he's been doing up to now is introducing us to Jesus. Who is he? And uh, so far we've seen that we could give a heading to who Jesus is being mapped out as so far, which is the Son of God with authority. That's what um, Luke has been presenting Jesus as so far. The angel Gabriel told Jesus' mum before he was born, he'll be the Son of God. Jesus realized it. This is at the temple at age 12. I must be in my father's house. He was not at Joseph's house on that day. He was at God's house. And at his baptism, audible voice from heaven, this is my son, whom I'm well pleased. He's God's son. Luke wants us to know that. And what does God's son do? Well, God's son shows authority over things. So we've seen him showing authority over sickness. We've seen him show authority over demons. We've seen him show authority even over sin. Your sins are forgiven just straight away. So he's the son of God with authority. But now, while that question is still going to be rumbling on throughout Luke, a new question is coming in now, which is not just who Jesus is, but what is this movement he is going to be starting all about. As we saw in the last couple of sermons on this, he started gathering followers to him. One of them is this guy Levi here, and so he's building a movement. And what people are asking then is, well, what is this movement, Jesus? What kind of thing are you starting? Essentially, what is Christianity going to be like? And actually, Jesus and his disciples' attendance at Levi's party, we begin to see that question, uh, just the answer to that question coming along a little bit, in that what Jesus' followers are doing and what he's doing is causing some questions from people, and Jesus is clarifying those things as he goes along. Now, 
The first concern Jonathan preached on uh, just for Easter break. If you've not heard it, please download it from the website. And it was the first question they asked. Jesus and disciples at this party, first problem. We're not very happy who you are partying with, Jesus. That was the first problem. And uh, Jesus gives a very succinct answer to this, uh, which uh, is this, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. You know, thought, I think that's one of, Jesus has some very good responses. I mean, he really nips that one in the bud. That's a really good, good going on Jesus' part. But if he thought at that point, phew, done and dusted, no more questions about my partying antics, he would have been wrong. Now, obviously, he didn't think that because he was never wrong, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> so, uh, because another question comes straight away after, In uh, the New Living Translation, in verse 33, it says, One day some people said to Jesus, well actually we can be a little more specific, it just says that they said to Jesus, it comes straight after. So first of all they say, who are you partying with? And Jesus says, it's not the health you need, the doctor is sick. And then they follow up straight away with, wait a minute, no it's not just who you're partying with, we are upset with actually that you're partying at all, Jesus. So let's read verse 33, what do they say? John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? Well, I guess in this uh, question, fasting is reasonably key. And as we're going to see that as we go along. So it's probably worth getting a handle on what fasting actually is. And I would imagine it's no uh, massive revelation to, to most of you to know that fasting is going without food for a length of time. It's the, uh, a feature of many world religions. And uh, at the moment, many dieting fads that seem to be out there. I'm not going to do a show of hands to see who's taken up these. But everyone I talk to is, oh, I'm doing this fasting diet. Um, yeah, I'll say it. In about a year, it'll probably be seen as bad for your health. So I don't know. These things change all the time. But, uh, you know. Oh, well. Um, but it's a product of all these sort of things. And, uh, it's the practice of going without food for a certain period of time. Now, um, what's the point of this then? Well, I think we can see it's a very clear symbolic gesture in many ways. Food and water are some of the most basic things we need to live. I mean, with the exception of oxygen, sleep, and possibly light, They're the most basic things we need to live. And so going without them is an incredible act of self-denial. Now actually though, it's not just that we need food and water. They're really important for enjoying life as well. I've got a friend uh, who was told by doctors a few years ago that he could never eat again through his mouth or drink. And uh, they had a way for him to get the nutrition he needed from food. But that was a terrible thing for him to hear, awful thing. Because actually in eating and drinking, it's an an important part of the enjoyment of life as well. If you celebrate, you have food and drink. If you spend time with friends, you have food and drink. And while this is true now... Even more in the ancient world, and probably even more in the Jewish ancient world, this was the case. Because like, if you look at the Jewish calendar, feasts left, right, and center. It's always about food. And uh, the, the social and religious life of the nation was hand-to-hand with food. We, we follow this. Some people often say, you Christians, you're, everything you do, you're always eating together. Well, it's, actually, it's part of Jewish culture that we've inherited. Actually, it's still part of our culture today. So here's the point. To deny yourself food and drink, to fast, is really to deny yourself. I mean, this is stoicism. That's what this is. It's a, it's a stoic practice. And their question here to Jesus demonstrated a religion that they had, these guys, of denial of the self, of discipline, and of abstinence. Look, we're always fasting. You're always feasting. What's they saying? They're saying, no, Religion, serious religion, should be about self-denial here. So here we have 
the crucial moment. The answer to the question I asked a few minutes ago, Jesus is on the spot, he has to answer. Is that what your religion is going to be like, Jesus? Is it going to be a religion of self-denial or a religion of joy? Is it going to be a religion of fasting or is it going to be a religion of feasting? Look what Jesus uh, then says. Jesus responded, verse 34, Do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast. What's he saying? Essentially, what he's saying is, they're asking him, is it about fasting, Jesus, or is it about feasting? And he's saying, completely the wrong question. You've missed the point here, totally. He's saying this, he's saying, do you want to understand what I'm about? Do you want to understand my message and the movement that I am starting? Well, look, it doesn't revolve around self-denial. And actually, it doesn't revolve around sensual pleasure either. What does it revolve around? It revolves totally and utterly around me. Christianity is not primarily about fasting or feasting. It's about Jesus. Now, I will ask for some response on this question. Let's look at this verse. Let's just think about what he's saying. It's a question. When do the wedding guests party in this verse? Question to you. When do they party? Verse 34. When's the groom's there? Thanks, Steve. Yeah, it's when the groom's there. So, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? They celebrate when the groom's there. So when do they fast? When he's gone. When the groom's gone. Jesus is saying that his movement is not going to be built around types of behavior. It's going to be built around the presence of the bridegroom. About Jesus. The presence of Jesus. And so honing in on, on the disciples' experience here then, for, their, for them, the bridegroom was literally with them. Jesus was there. They were probably, some of them would have been rubbing shoulders with him literally at that point. So what's their default position? I'll put it to you again. What's their default position? Bridegroom's there. What's that? Feasting. It celebrates. Celebrating with the groom. You're being very quiet and reserved like that. That's good. But I am getting answers, so that's good. I'll, I'll stop on that. I can see we're uncomfortable with the whole thing. <laughs> it's feasting. It's celebrating with the groom. Now, years later, actually, Jesus would be taken from them. Jesus is predicting this here. And he'd leave them all alone for a couple of days. And then he says, what will happen? Well, they're going to fast. And why are they fasting? Well, they're fasting as a sign of mourning because they desperately want him back. Christianity is not going to be built around rituals and patterns of behavior, but on the person and presence of Jesus the bridegroom. So in a sense then, we've finished our question. We've answered the question. But I think if we left it there, it would leave little practical application for us. And I want to unpack this and apply this to us with three questions today that I think still need to be asked about this passage and about us. How do we apply it to us? Question one would be this. Is the bridegroom with us today? Question one. Question two, what place then does celebrating have in our faith today? And question three, what place does fasting have for us as Christians today? Now the first question has got to be most important if it all revolves around Jesus and Jesus' presence. Is his presence with us today? So let's start there. Is Jesus with us today if we are Christians? Well, let's get the obvious out of the way first. He is clearly not with us uh, as Christians today in the same way as he was with his disciples. When you come to church, you don't need to save a seat next to you for Jesus. When you're having dinner, you don't need to cook an extra portion. When you're at work, you don't need to get him to book in with a receptionist and get a badge. He doesn't, he's not around like that, okay? But that is not all that's to be said on the matter. And if you've got a Bible, if you could turn to John 14, 
John 14, 16 to 21. I want to look at this in some detail, because some, I could give a very quick answer to this, but I think it's really important we grasp the enormity of the answer to this question. John 14, 16 to 21. Now, in John 13, Jesus has started dropping the bombshell on his disciples. Basically, guys, I'm off. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to die. Okay, John 13, 33. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. And so in John 14 now, he softens the blow slightly. And he says this. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. So think of the situation. Jesus is saying, I'm off, I'm going. But guys, I'll soften the blow for you. And it seems he's saying, this other guy is coming. The Holy Spirit is coming and he'll replace me. But it seems to be very much he's saying a different thing. In this case, they would have been very clear what the Holy Spirit was. A different person is coming. Now, I imagine for a disciple, that is not very comforting news. I mean, these guys have spent serious time with Jesus, and they love him. They think he's the best person they've ever met by a country mile. And so for him to say, yeah, don't worry, guys. Someone else will be coming along after. No, we don't want anybody else, Jesus. It's holy, this advocate character. No, no, we want you. So what does Jesus say? Well, Jesus goes on. Next verse, verse 18. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Slightly puzzled if I was a disciple. Wait a minute, I'm lost. Who's coming? Is it this advocate or is it you? Are both? Do we get both? That sounds good deal. Jesus, well then Jesus continues. Verse 19. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you also will live. When I'm raised to life again, you will know that I am in my Father and you are in me, and I am in you. Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them. And I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying this, the conclusion must be surely that he promises that after his resurrection, because he's not just talking about coming back after his resurrection here, I will come into you. Everyone who believes I'll reveal myself. This isn't resurrection predictions. No, after his resurrection and ascension to heaven, he will return, Jesus will return, the bridegroom, the source of all our joy and celebration to live inside us and reveal himself to us through the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, some of you might think, it's very pedantic. I mean, who lives inside me as a Christian? God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus. Who cares? It's all kind of the same, isn't it? Trinity stuff. It's confusing. But who cares about the specifics of this? Well, I think there is a vital point to be understood here about the mysterious unity that is particularly highlighted between the Son and the Spirit. You see, Jesus reveals to us most clearly the attributes, the character of God. And actually, Jesus reveals us that character most attractively as well. We believe there is one God who shows himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, the Son shows us God's character most clearly. In Hebrews 1 verse 3, it says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being. And you might understand this if you've ever got slightly stuck in the Old Testament before. 
you're going through the Old Testament, and you're getting yourself in a right quandary. And you ask questions, what is this God like? Because we read the Bible to find out what God's like. Do you know that? It's not to find out what to do today or whether you should move house or something. It's to find who is God. Okay, just lock that one away. It's a side, but anyway. Um, you're reading the Old Testament, you think, well, what is this God like? Is he merciful or is he judgmental? He's looking a bit in the balance at the moment because I don't know what's happening with this city being burnt with fire or something like that. There's a question. What about another question you could ask? Does God care about me as an individual or does he just have general concern for the human project? It's a question you could look at the Old Testament and ask. What about this? Is God really morally pure or is he actually very cunning and will use any available method, good or bad, to fulfill his purpose? I don't know if you've ever been stuck on those questions in the Old Testament. This passage is this, but what's happening here? If we look at the just at the Father, I tell you what, the answer is there, but it's hard to get to. But God does this. He comes down as his son, and he gives the character of God a face, the exact representation of his being. And what do we see about God when we look at Jesus? We see this. We see a God who pardons adulteresses and tax collectors. And a God who has mercy on prostitutes and on thieves. Yet he also drives religious hypocrites out of the temple with a whip. Yeah, he's loving and merciful, but he won't stand for sin. We suddenly see it now. What about what else we see? We see a God in Jesus who would die for the whole world. He's concerned about the human project, but who will go up to a leper and will touch them when no one else will go near him. Or who will listen out and hear the cry of a, a blind man who everyone else is just saying, shut up, Jesus is important. He'll hear the cry and go and heal him. Does he care about the individual? It's the Jesus who could, uh, John would call about himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. Not the, the disciple part of this movement where God loves everyone. No, no, he loves individuals and he's concerned for the human project. He's concerned for humanity. And we also see a God in Jesus who could use the treachery of Judas, the cowardice of Pilate, and the hatred of the Jewish leaders and the whole mob to bring about the greatest good for humanity in the cross. Very strategic. It looks very kind of cunning. How has he managed to do that? Evil things, but it's to good. However, when he stands up before his accuser at the end of his life, the one who would have all the lowdown, all the dirt to be gathered on this man, Pilate says this, I find no basis for a charge against this man. No basis. Morally pure, perfect, yet he can bring those things for good. The transcendence and mystery is still there, but we see a face now, and I'll tell you what, that makes it so much clearer, and also it makes it so much more attractive. People are willing to say all sorts of things about the God of the Old Testament. There's books written on, he's this and he's this, and how could you worship this? They're wrong. But I tell you what, no one looks at Jesus and says, look at Jesus, he does this. No, even the deepest cynic would just say, well, I don't think this guy could have been like this, partly because he's so attractive. There's mystery here, but he's so attractive. Now listen, that Jesus is the one who is with us. That Jesus is the one who is in us through his spirit. The bridegroom is with us. So the second question then, follows very, very dynamically from that question. What place does celebrating have in our Christian lives? Well, it has every place. 
For us as Christians, joy and rejoicing is our default position because the bridegroom's with us. How can you describe Christianity? What's a good phrase? Well, it's the one here. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Celebrating with the bridegroom. That's what Christianity is. We celebrate with the bridegroom. Celebration is joy. Our default setting is not fasting, mourning, frowning, embracing glumness and boredom. Oh, it's so hard, all the things I've given up, but I'll plow on. Now, that's not Christianity. Christianity is celebrating with Jesus because he's here with us. Can I ask you? It's a difficult question. Is that your experience, day in, day out, of being a Christian, if you are a Christian here? Especially, I guess, those who lent towards the more stoic in my beginning question that I asked you. Is that your experience? I want to be clear. Christianity is not meant to be defined by what you have turned away from. It's defined by who you have turned towards. As Christians, we are not supposed to be known as a group of people who don't do certain things. If I was to ask one of your friends who's not a Christian, what does that Christianity mean to them? Well, they say they don't swear, they don't lie, don't uh, do this, they don't do this. They don't really approve of this and this and this. Well, it's not meant to be that. Those things are important, but that's not what defines our Christianity. We should be known as Christians primarily as those who delight in Jesus. It's a positive, not a negative thing. Being a Christian is being full of joy. How's your joy? It's not a kind of side question alongside all others. Are you feeling worried at the moment? Well, what about this? How are you reading the Bible? And how's your joy? No, this is the key question in Christianity. How's your joy? How is it doing? It's a difficult question. And that question causes you to feel a little bit, well, I'm not sure. I think the next point could help us. And the next point also will help any of you Epicureans who are starting to feel a little bit smug as well. Like, yes, I got it right, nailed it. I'm glad I had 10 pints last night. Right, so what, the last one is this. What place does fasting then have in our Christian lives? Last question. Well, Jesus in this passage gives us a time where he says that fasting is very appropriate. He makes it specific. In fact, he assumes that at this time it will happen. And that is when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Now, for us as Christians, then, how do we stand with this? Well, we, we know that that cannot happen to us. It says in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. Jesus said when he was about to go back to heaven, okay, we understand this. Now, this could have been puzzling otherwise. He's about to leave, and he says, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Well, he's saying, basically, when I come back through the Spirit, I'm never leaving you. Jesus can't be taken away from us. Objective fact if you're a Christian. However, it would be very foolish and trite of me to say that it never feels like that. You've been a Christian any length of time at all, you will know there are times when God seems very distant and he seems almost absent. I'm not saying he is, I'm just saying it feels like that. And that can happen in, in two different ways, actually. Firstly, in our own lives, God can feel distant or absent. Now, I'm afraid I cannot explain this fully to you. I can't explain the ins and outs of this. I can't give you a full technical description of what's happening. I know this. I know there's Christians, the Holy Spirit's inside every one of us. I know that we're encouraged to be baptized in the Spirit and go on being filled with the Spirit. However, even then, there are days when you wake up and your prayers aren't being answered, you're not hearing from God. He seems like he's not there. Now, that could have something to do with us 
could be our receptors are wrong. Jesus is there, but because of sin or complacency or worldliness, we're just not picking him up right. That could be the deal. It may be that he does withdraw slightly in some mysterious way or he stops speaking. Maybe he does that to test us or discipline us. I mean, I mean, I just don't know. All I know is that it feels like that sometimes. And because of the nature of Christianity, that really matters. Because Christianity isn't about knowing facts. Of, don't worry. Don't worry it doesn't feel like God's with you. He's with you. Just leave it that. Stop going on about it. No, because we love him. You know, you know what I mean? If we love him, it's not enough to know he's with you. Don't worry about feeling it. No, we want to know his presence. I'll give you an example. Let's imagine I had an accident, bad accident, and I woke up from unconsciousness to find that I'm in a hospital room and I can no longer see. And the doctor, first thing the doctor says to me is, I'm very sorry, Mr. Meller, but you've lost your eyesight. You can no longer see anything. Now, I would imagine at that moment, my first response, one of my first things that I would say is, where's Gemma? Where's my wife? I, I want to know where she is. And I just imagine the doctor was to say to me, oh, don't worry, Mr. Meller, she's sitting about five yards from you to the side in the hospital room we're, we're in. And then he went on and started talking about the diagnosis and how they did the best they could, and et cetera, et cetera. Would I settle for that? Like, okay, brilliant, fantastic. Please tell me more, doctor, about my life of sightlessness. Would, would I go down that route? No way. I'd say, wait, doctor, shut up, stop it. I don't want to know that Gemma's in the room. I want to feel her in the room. Can, I want to hold her hand. I want to hear her voice. Stop talking. I don't care about you. I care about the one I love. I want her near me. I want to feel her presence. It's not just enough to know he's there, she's there. It's enough to know I want to feel her there because I love her. That's the point of it. Now, there is no way Jesus can be taken from you. But it can feel like he has. And that is vitally important that at that moment we do something about it. Or at least we feel something if we love him, if our life revolves around him. We've all known times like that, and maybe you're going through that now. So that's the first way we can know God's absence in our lives. Secondly, it's in others' lives we can see uh, the absence of Jesus. This might be in uh, individuals you know who aren't Christians, and they're far from their saviour. The bridegroom is absent from them. You see God's absence in their lives. Maybe it reveals itself in the way their life goes. Maybe their life is as happy as Larry on the outside. They've got everything. Actually, no, they haven't got everything. They're missing the one whose celebration revolves around. You see Jesus' absence in them. It might be in a geographical location. It might be a country you like to pray for. And you look at the country, you don't see many churches there. You don't see many Christians there. It seems that Jesus is absent from that place. Or a city, or maybe our city, maybe a town in England, maybe a specific uh, area of this city. It could even be in our church. Come along to a meeting, or something, we had a meeting like today, and get to the end of the meeting, you think, oh, that was all right. Quite like the songs today. Talk was funny in part, not particularly funny all the way through, but it had some jokes. That's all right. And you think, well, wait a minute. Was God there today? And sometimes you can think, well, yeah, kind of he was, but you know what? He could have been there more. Maybe he'd been there more before, or I see more of him in the Bible, and I love him, and I'm seeing an absence or a distance. Maybe in life group. We call our life groups, a lot of our life groups, encounter groups. And I, I made it very clear at the beginning of, of our last encounter group. I said, look, we are not coming here to just offer some little prayers about things and have a nice meal. We're coming to encounter God. We're meeting with God. I made that clear week one. We finished that. Now we're about to start a new one. Let's do a bit of public feedback on my life group. Did we encounter God every week? 
I can remember times where God spoke to me, quite powerfully actually, to me and Gemma to really help us in a situation. But did we encounter the living Jesus in a way that makes you want to celebrate and do nothing else every week? No, we didn't. We really didn't. We've got to change how we do our life group because of that. But that's an important question. I'm spotting a distance or an absence. I don't know why, but I'm spotting it. And I love Jesus' presence, so therefore, I want to see more of him. Listen, when you see Jesus' absence anywhere, the key question is this. is not this. I'm going to come to this question in a second. The key question is not, do you fast or do you X? Now, the key question is this. Do you miss him at that moment? When you see his absence, do you miss him? When you see people or places where he's distant, does it move you with compassion, recognizing they are missing the one of ultimate value? Does it grieve you? Does it make you want to mourn? Does it make you want to grab hold of any available method you could possibly find to get the bridegroom back? Maybe you just think, well, go on as normal if that's what my life's like at the moment. You know, it's sooner or later, it's ups and downs, isn't it? I feel God's presence soon, let's just burst, burst through it. Maybe if you've been really honest, you think, look, Johnny, this is not on my plane at the moment. This is not, this is not an important thing for me. I've got much more important things than the, the, the measurable, imminent, tangible presence of God in my life. Listen. There is nothing more important than the tangible, imminent presence of God in your life. If you don't hear anything today, please grab hold of that. Nothing, nothing is more important than that. That is what we're about. That's why God sent his son to us to die, not so we could know facts, but because we could have Jesus. That's why it's the most important thing. God counted it enough for his son. He shed his blood for it. We need to value it. And when it's not there, we miss it. We're all about Jesus as Christians. And that means our lives are defined by celebration, not by abstention. That's not the definition. Because Jesus is very near and he's very available to us. However, flip side of same coin, when for whatever reason he appears to withdraw from us or from others, it should bother us. We don't just wait. No, no, we should go to any lengths available to get him back. And you know what? If you're at that place today in any way, I've got a method for you. I've got a method I'd like to recommend to you. It's from the passage. And it's a method that Christians throughout history and in the Bible, both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, have found very helpful to get back the present feeling of the presence of God. And do you know what it is? It's fasting. It's going without food. Now, again, not, there's not teaching in the Bible given exactly why this practice is helpful. We, but we can imagine. Maybe it's the element of going without a basic human need. Maybe that acts out our dependency on God, possibly. Maybe it's the physical experience that goes with fasting of physical hunger that reminds us that we are dependent on God, that we are hungry for God. Maybe it's the cost of giving up what's the central part of our lives. The, it's, it, just saying Christianity is not about abstinence and self-denial, you could take that very much too far because sometimes denying yourself of something like that, and there's lots of ways we should deny ourselves in our Christian lives, sometimes it, it does show a seriousness to God about things. Maybe it's the very, very simple thing that missing meals frees up time to pray and seek God. I imagine it's probably a combination of all of those things, actually. But for whatever reason, if you're hungry for more of Jesus' presence in your life, I want to recommend fasting to you. 
It's maybe a one-off to try, but to build as a habit into your life, into your Christian life. Yeah, uh, how am I doing in my Christian life? I want to be spending time talking to God. I want to spend time hearing from God. I want to be spending time reading the Bible. You know, when did I last fast? Spiritual disciplines. I want to encourage those things to you. Now, as I conclude, uh, I want to point out today that we're, uh, oh, you know this, we're about to start a week of prayer as Church Central, and we do this reasonably regularly. I want to pray for the things that we're, we're doing, we're involved in. Uh, I want to pray for them together. It's, it's clear in the Bible that corporate prayer, not just praying on your own, corporate coming together, that's a powerful and effective way of bringing our request to God. And I'd really encourage you to, to put aside one night at least, if not more, this week to come and pray with us. We've got uh, some of the times out there, some of them site-based. You can go to anyone you like, but whatever's easiest uh, for you. But I guess for me, when I'm praying, we're going to pray for all sorts of specific things this week. There is one thing I'm going to be praying for, kind of as an umbrella prayer over every prayer that we pray, and it will be this. I want more of Jesus' presence in everything that we're doing in my life, in my friends' lives, and in our church. And so therefore, I would like to encourage you to put this message into practice this very week in uh, joining us to fast as well for a portion of this week. Because we've seen fasting is a method that is a way of calling God's presence. The bridegroom is taken for us. Then you fast. Why? Because you want him back again. And I encourage you, if you think of your week, well, I'm, I'm going to come on this day, Thursday, to go on Thursday and say, I'm going to miss breakfast, lunch, dinner. I'm not going to have food that day. And in the time you would have eaten to be praying and come ready, because I'm sure you will hear from God in that case for the evening, and they come and pray with us and join us in that way. Now, I'm not, this isn't a rule. This isn't a law now I'm setting like you must fast. That's, that's kind of fasting that goes a bit wrong. Sometimes. And I'm not telling you to do it to demonstrate your willpower so you feel great at the end of the day, or even because I think God wants us to suffer and go without good things. I'm not saying that at all. I'm doing, saying it because it seems like, I don't know if you would agree with me on this, in many areas that the bridegroom is not with us in a way that he should be with us. It's not saying anything about him, it's saying about how it feels. And fasting is a very appropriate response then so we can see his presence and feel his presence more. So I invite you to join us with that this week.